this morning, which is great. And, um, and I'm sure I'm praying on all our behalf when I, when I ask Father uh, Jesus, would you release Graham into speaking to us this morning? Open our hearts, open our ears. Uh, let this message at the beginning of a new year be one of hope. Let it be uh, a release to Graham to, to bring something to us which has been uh, placed uh, within him by you. And may it be good for all of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Is that, are we on? Excellent. Thank you. So, um, are we on? Yeah, right. Um, I'm out of practice. What can I say? So, um, good to see you all. Um, I want to tell you a story about um, uh, when I was a kid and a moment of revelation. And I was reading, I was a teenager, and I was reading in the Bible about Abraham. And uh, it was not long after I'd heard a sermon about Abraham uh, at church. And I read that he really, really stupidly started lying about his wife and got himself into all sorts of trouble. I don't know if you remember the story. And do you know what I thought? Fantastic. It was kind of one of the best things I'd ever read, ever. And I know that might sound a bit strange to you, but it was just, who knows about Quality Street? Yeah, okay. Right, so here is where myself and, and Janet Sharples differ, in that I really, really, really don't like coffee creams. Just so, does anybody like coffee creams? You very strange people that you are. All right, but, but here's the thing about Quality Street, is that in every tin of Quality Street, no matter how good it is, there are coffee creams. And, um, and they kind of sneak up on you, and uh, if you're not really careful, you accidentally unwrap one and put it in your mouth and, um, and are hugely disappointed uh, because really quality street tins are not perfect. Now, I know that all sounds a bit bizarre and surreal, but I wanted to explain this to you. So when I was a kid, I, I remember listening to stories of all sorts of people in the Bible, and one of them was Abraham. And when I read this passage in the Bible, and I was getting to an age where I was reading the Bible for myself and understanding what the Bible said and what it was telling us, but I'd not long previously listened to a guy who uh, was preaching about Abraham. And it was in very much the classical Victorian style of preaching that happened in the Brethren Assembly that I grew up in. And he was telling us how, like no other ordinary man, Abraham was imbued with wisdom and imbued with characteristics that were far above anything that us mere mortals could possibly aspire to, uh, and that he floated through his life in a cloud of righteousness. And of course, for somebody like me, and I, I don't know about you, but here's the thing about me, I know me. And there's that lovely thing in, in the AA Alcoholics Anonymous, not the Automobile Association, but Alcoholics Anonymous say, which is this, wherever you go, there you are. 
you can't escape you. And there was the trouble. I was this rather troubled uh, teenager who quite often opened his mouth and said very unfortunate things. I had a whole range of thoughts that I'm not going to describe to you now, but frankly, they even made me ashamed. And I had all of this, and yet what I was being told was what I should be like, almost without trying, was this fantastic, perfect superhero. And because I was in a very well-behaved church, I'd come to the erroneous conclusion that everybody in that church except for me was somehow managing that. That in fact, I was the coffee cream in that particular quality street (laughs) tin. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been that coffee cream? And you've looked around as Marcus so fantastically said, even though we shouldn't, we compare ourselves with others and go, oh no. I'm looking at my wrapper, and it looks like I'm a coffee cream. So when I read that Abraham was frankly a bit of an idiot, I was hugely encouraged. Not because I thought it was a good idea for us to behave like idiots, but somehow because it said, well, perhaps there's some hope for me, that maybe actually idiots can please God. Maybe it's possible. Maybe God likes the taste of coffee creams. (laughs) Who knows? And it was fantastic. And it was a point of revelation for me. And this is what I learned from this at quite an early age, was this. Read what the Bible says, not what people tell you the Bible says. Read what the Bible says, not what people tell you the Bible says. Do you get that? Now, the reason that this has been very helpful and is helpful for everybody is this, that people will tell you what the Bible says for a whole range of reasons. Most of them probably quite honorable, but with no necessary guarantee of its accuracy. In, in the Acts, we read about a group of people called Bereans. You heard about Bereans? So it says this about Bereans. It says the Bereans were much more noble uh, than another group to be, remain nameless. It's not for me to point the finger. They were much more noble because they received what they heard, and then this is what they did. They eagerly searched the Scriptures to see if what they were being told was true which was a very wise thing to do. So we're going to start a series running up from now to Easter where we're going to look at the early church in the book of Acts. But this is what we're going to do. We're going to search the Scriptures to see if what people tell us about the early church is true. Excuse me. Now here's the thing. The first few chapters of Acts is often talked about as the model. The church I grew up in described itself as a New Testament church. Is that a phrase you've heard before? A New Testament church. We're a New Testament church. And by that they meant, and and I'm not kidding you, by that they meant we are much more faithful to the Bible than other churches. (laughs) 
That's what they meant. Um, it's interesting, because as I've got older and, and a bit longer in the tooth, um, that's actually a really silly thing, isn't it? Because let's be honest, as we get older, we grind our teeth down. We should say, as I'm older and shorter in the tooth, or in my case, as I'm older and more hollow in the tooth, that would also be more accurate. Anyway, by the by, I digress. Um, I've met lots of people on lots of churches who describe themselves as New Testament churches in lots of different ways. And what I've discovered, if I might make so bold, is this, that they've basically found a phrase or a passage in, the, in, in Acts, usually in the first few chapters, focused on it and built their entire theology around that one area. And that varies from everything, like I said, from the church I grew up in, which was about, we are biblically accurate, which is a very large phrase, by the way, and turned out not entirely to be true, but that's by the by. Um, remember, just so you say, I'd not, I want to sound judgmental in any way because that's not what I mean, but any claims to be flawless completely gets rid of what is clearly a scriptural theory, which is the coffee cream theory of life, which is actually in every tin of Quality Street, there is a coffee cream. In every biblical philosophy that churches have developed, there is a coffee cream. In every claim to have got it absolutely right, there is an unrecognized coffee cream. Who knows? It might be me. It quite possibly is. But that's what I'm saying, and it's interesting. So there are groups of people who've said, we are, we are just like the New Testament church. Why are you just like the New Testament church? Because we give the Bible much more authority than anybody else does. Why are you a New Testament? We are a New Testament church because we pray for miracles unlike other churches. Why are you a New Testament? We are a New Testament church because we force our members to sell property and give it away. That kind of comes in and out of fashion for very short periods of time, by the way. But it does happen. And all of this is about taking small parts of the book of Acts and saying, this is what a New Testament church was. Okay, just so you know, that's not what we read. So what we read is what we just heard Paul say and what Mark's rather excellent, well-found video tells us, which is this, what is the church built on? What is the church built on? And this is what Jesus said. When Peter confessed this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember that? When Jesus was asking, Jesus was asking uh, his disciples, who do people say I am? And they said, well, you're a great man, a prophet, you're some kind of teacher, you're pretty impressive. Um, and then they said to his disciples, well, who do you think I am? And he said, well, you are the chosen one. You are it. You're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Peter said, thank you. Jesus said, thank you, Peter. On this rock, here's where it all went wrong by taking something out of context. Not Peter. It was a nice pun, Peter the Rock, you know what I mean? But on this confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, I will build my church. On the confession that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Now, one of the fantastic things about this, because it's always good, I don't know about you, but it is for me, when I look back on things and actually discover that I've actually learned from, from an experience. Well, what we hear in the passage that we read today is that Peter has learned this. Peter has learned that this is the basis for what they are doing. Why are we here before you? I'll tell you why we're here before you, says Peter to the Sanhedrin, because this Jesus, whom you crucified. There is no other name, says Peter, by which mankind can be saved. That is the basis of the church. The church is built on that and that alone. Which says that this, that any church which is fulfilling what Jesus commanded, which is this, you will be my witnesses, go into all the earth, and what? Make disciples. So those are the commands. A couple of things that I always found interesting about um, the concept of New Testament church was that often there wasn't a lot of witnessing going on. You see, it's very easy to be a gospel preaching church when everybody that you preach the gospel to has heard the gospel 20 million times and is possibly a close relative. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to do that. It's very easy to preach the gospel when you have made a structure that's so rigid that anybody new who comes into it is so afraid of getting any of the structure wrong that they forget to listen to any of it. It's very easy to do this kind of thing, but that is not what the New Testament church in the Acts did. Quite the opposite. Their gospel was in public, was in the open. In fact, this is not an environment in which that early Jerusalem church would have been preaching the gospel. Bridge North High Street, potentially. Costa Coffee, Witherspoons. That would have been a much more likely environment. Who knows? Interesting. So what we can say is this, that Jesus ascended into heaven and he told the disciples, you are my witnesses going to all the earth and make disciples. And the Acts of the Apostles, the book that we were reading from, is not a book which tells us how to build the early church. That's not what the Acts of Apostles is. The Acts of the Apostles is this. It's the story of how they got on with it. And in particular, the second half is a lot about how the Apostle Paul got on with it. And there is some speculation that the Acts of the Apostles, along with the Gospel of Luke, were actually written as part of Paul's defense when he went on trial in Rome. Paul went on trial twice in Rome. Once he got released the second time, he was executed. And there is some speculation that the book of Acts and the book of Luke were written as part of his first time round defense. 
So they were not written to say, look, all you Roman pagan judges, this is, this is how the early church is going to be perfectly built. This is our instruction book for building a perfect church. Far from it, quite the opposite. One of the great things about Acts is that it's written in the true Bible style. It's written absolutely warts and all. You know, it, 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 it tells you about those really nice purple ones with the, with the nut inside that Sarlene's favorite, and it tells you about the coffee creams as well. And it doesn't hold back. And this is one of the fantastic things about it. This is one of the things that I find very, very encouraging about reading about the early church, is that you read how it went. And it was a rather bumpy road with things that went incredibly well and things that really didn't. Things that were misguided and things that were not. So I want to just uh, talk about a couple of things that have happened since then in church history. The first one is this, that the the concept of New Testament church kind of got lost with the arrival of Christendom. If you know about Christendom, this is where Uh, The Emperor Constantine uh, adopted Christianity as part of the empire, but not just that, but linked the Roman Empire and the Roman Church together so that the two became one. And and the church became a political body as much as it became a religious body. Now, to some extent, therefore, the lines of military and economic, uh, as well as uh, cultural and social engineering became part of church life and the independence, uh, and what's more, if you like, uh, the free flow of church very much began to fade. Um, However, with the arrival of the Reformation, which happened a thousand years later, um, in the West, there was this resurgence of this idea that we are going to be a New Testament church. We are going back to basics, and we're going to be a New Testament church. The interesting thing is the diversity with which this happened. So there were New Testament churches that met in groups of 40 and 50 and refused to speak or even eat with anybody else. And they were New Testament churches. There were New Testament churches uh, who were essentially run by uh, one man or one family in which everybody else had to obey without question. Nowadays we'd call that a cult, but that's what happened. There were New Testament churches called New Testament churches who were given to extremes of all manner of elements, including huge sexual immorality, financial exploitation, etc., etc., all calling themselves New Testament churches. The interesting thing I find is that if we read in our Bible and read the letters that were written to the churches and read what Jesus said to the churches at the end of Revelation, we discover that the New Testament church was exactly the same and was behaving just like all the New Testament churches that were claiming to be New Testament churches then. It was fantastic. We were awash with coffee creams. Now, how then, when I get to my tender age, when I had a lot of hair and the inability to grow a beard, Um, did I discover this idea of Bible characters floating flawlessly on clouds of 
righteousness and rightness. How did that happen? Well, I want to tell you about this. This is about a concept called utopianism. Now, utopianism is the opposite of the critics of the church nowadays. The critics of the church nowadays claim cultural relevance. They say that was the church then. They lived in a very different world. All the values that we read about in the New Testament, well, well, they don't really apply to us now because we're far too modern and sophisticated and clever to apply all those kinds of moralities that we read about in the New Testament. This has got cultural relevance, not very helpful, and certainly not what the Bible teaches. But the alternative, which is utopianism, which says this, if we can somehow construct this, everything will be lovely. Everything will become perfect. Everybody will behave in a beautiful, lovely way towards one another. It will be loved. Now, okay, the concept of New Testament church isn't the only form of utopianism. We hear lots of political utopianism, don't we? If only we could do that. We've got hippie utopianism. If there was only more love in the world. But the thing about utopianism is it's not based on the Bible. Utopianism is based on Greek philosophy. And a Greek philosophy that particularly says that as we were reading in the, or seeing in the, in the video, that the predominance of human behavior is good, not bad. Okay, so there's only several thousand years of history that suggests that that's complete nonsense uh, and that we've never managed it because actually we are just a collection, a planet full of coffee creams uh, who just spoil the pot just by being there. I remember when I was a kid hearing this thing which said, uh, if ever there is a perfect church, don't go to it because you'll spoil it. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But utopianism is a very attractive thought, isn't it? It's a very attractive thought. If only we could behave like this, everything would be perfect. Now, the New Testament church thought like this as well. They tried it and it went very badly wrong. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but they tried it in several ways. And what they ended up being was what all utopianists, all idealists end up being, which is exclusive. You have to keep to a little group of people who will do the same as you, because if you let anybody else in, then they'll spoil it, and then it won't be utopia. And this is what happened to the early church. So therefore, what I'm going to say is probably a little controversial, and I don't want to burst your bubble. So if you have this ideal or this idealism, I apologize before now. And I'm afraid in this age, as in previous centuries, you will still read people who claim the idealism of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is not written as an idealist, but a realist description of the church. But here's the thing. The story of the early church is not written as a model for our church. It isn't written as that. It's a narrative about how the church operated. And it starts with one thing, and one thing only. And it's not Pentecost. Not that I'm saying that Pentecost isn't very important as it is, but it starts with the gospel. The church is built on this, that sinful people like me, I'm sure you're much better than me, I'm really, I know me, who cannot in any way 
get to a level of behavior or thought or attitude that will stand before a holy God and not be destroyed by the light of his righteousness. That's me. The only way, the only way in which I can be transformed is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and me standing in that. And that is what the church is built on. Then, in between, and now, and for however long until Jesus comes back. And any departure from that is going to build a church on shaky foundations. Can I hear amen? amen. Thank you. And that's so important. That's where we start. Everything else. The second thing is this, that as a church, we are in the same way as the early church on a mission. We are on a mission. We have the same job as the early church was given. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm very glad that somebody's brought baptism up already today. If you haven't been baptized and you would like to be baptized, then goodness gracious, a Baptist church is the ideal place to be, isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. We have the pit of watery joy right at the front here. All you have to do is ask. Bless you all. Fantastic. So we are still on a mission. We need to be sharing the gospel. And I will tell you this, how did the early church end up with lots of people being saved? It didn't do that by having people listening to the gospel for the 400,000th time inside a church. This is what people did, which is exactly the same as now and has always been, which is the people who were the church shared the gospel with friends and neighbors and those outside and were not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I agree with Rosemary. Miracles follow salvation. Salvation comes with preaching the gospel. So our prayer on the streets team who go out into the market and offer to prayer and share the gospel with people, that is the early church, the middle church, the late church, the now church, and the church to come. As indeed is bringing your friends to hear the gospel, sharing it in your homes over food and meals and so on. That is our mission. But more than that, the mission of our church then is to make disciples. So when I see young people stepping up to leadership, when I see not so young people stepping up to leadership, when I see people stepping out in faith and taking a risk, then I'm encouraged because people are being discipled to grow in their faith for Jesus. So listen, listen to what you heard this morning from the young people. Step out. Step out, you'll be there. So, what do we need to learn from the early church? Well, we need to learn from the early church, from the narrative of Acts, what the church did well, what the church did right, what the church did good. We also need to learn from the early church where it was naive, where it was foolish, where it allowed itself to be corrupted and misled, where the early church, in its enthusiasm, pursued things that were never actually going to work. We need to learn this because as a church, we need to learn. We need to grow and become better at church. Not so that we are utopianists and live in this perfect world one with another, but that we are better at our mission 
from what we are now. That's what we need to learn. So what I'm going to say in, in uh, Ecclesiastes is a verse which says, don't say, why were the old days better than this? Do you know that one? Why were the old days better than this? Why, why has there never been a good song written since 1973 or 1985 or indeed 1948? Um, the, the good songs have been written. You're just too old to like them. That's the problem. It, it hasn't actually changed. You've changed or you haven't changed. All of that. Don't say that, says Solomon. And I'm going to say the same. We should not be looking at the early church and saying, why can't we be like the early church? Because actually, if we're saying that, then we're not really reading what the early church was like. Anybody called James? Anybody here called James? Okay, you're the first to die, just to point that out, um, uh, if we're going to be like the early church. Um, no, we're we not necessarily saying that. What we need to be is the church now learning it. We have the same commission. So let's not hanker in our lives for what's not real. There are no lives without coffee creams. If you think there's the perfect and the perfect whatever it is, the perfect job, the perfect marriage, the perfect children, the perfect spiritual walk, the perfect church leader. Please don't think that one. You know, the, the, the perfect prayer meeting, the perfect… No, there isn't. When we get to heaven, it will be perfect. Before that, we are always working. And if you are relying on other people to be something they are not, they will only disappoint you, and you will end up like so many other people who think, why can't everybody just be as reasonable as me? Why can't everybody think just like me? Why can't… I'll tell you why, because one or other of you is a coffee cream, or maybe both of you. <laughs> who knows? Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't do it in your life, and don't do it in the church. We are all sinners, we need Jesus. Okay, if you are looking back and thinking, why can't we be like the old days? Don't do that. You need to learn. Why can't we be the church moving forward now is the question. Why can't I be what God has intended for me now? God put you through that season that you now think of as your golden age so that you could become something that is effective now, not so that you could go around telling everybody how brilliant it was back then, which Acts doesn't do, and I'm suggesting we don't either. So here's the question. Are we church now? Are we church now? Okay, if we are church now, we have a mission. The mission is forward, not back. What do you and I need to learn to make us more effective going forward, not back? What can we learn? How can we grow? This is a new year. I believe that our society is in a season where there's more open to the gospel, openness to the gospel than I have ever seen. I believe that we're in a season at the moment where the church has more to offer in the minds, because it's always had the same thing to offer, but in the minds of people than it has for a long time. 
And the challenge for us is to learn how to be effective in our community. If you haven't met Jesus and you want to know the life change, then talk to us and we will talk to you and we are happy to introduce you to Jesus. If you know Jesus, but you somehow feel that you're always the coffee cream spoiling the perfect inequality street, then talk to us and receive prayer because it's a lie. You are indeed in a tin of coffee creams. I'm sorry to say, none of us aspire to the heady heights of a Brazil nut covered in chocolate with sweet caramel round it. One day maybe, but not today. So if you are being crippled by thinking that, get some prayer and get real because that's for you. And above all, let's always put Jesus first. Put him in the middle, at the top, at the bottom, to the sides. It's a gospel that we need to learn to grow in. So we're going to spend time up till Easter. I'm sorry, I'm out of practice, so I've talked too long. Uh, but we're going to spend time running up to Easter, looking at what we can learn from the real early church, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the exciting things, the power-based things, the life-changing things, and the mistakes, and grow together to be church now. Thank you. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you that you are building your church now, that we are as much a collection of flawed, difficult, coffee cream type people as their church ever was. Lord, enable us to see that it is only by your power and by your grace that we are faithful and powerful and authentic and effective. Lord, just help us not to hanker for what was, but to only chase after you. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.